When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our brand new Substack newsletter and website at LetItRollPodcast.com. We've got archives of every episode, sorted by genre, era, guest, co-host, and mini-series. It's also a great way to support the show if you can afford it. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, as part of our Let Motown Roll series, we're recasting Nate's 2022 discussion with Brooks Long about Rick James's autobiography, co-written with David Ritz. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and we welcome back Brooks Long to continue our informal David Ritz book club with a discussion of GLOW, the autobiography of Rick James with David Ritz. Brooks, welcome back. I'm so glad to be back. Yeah, this David Ritz book club series has been a lot of fun, and I don't know if anybody ever had more fun than Rick James. <laughs> <laughs> as Charlie Murphy or as he told Charlie Murphy, he had too much fun. Yeah. Indeed. And, and so this was a difficult one for Ritz to put together. They'd been talking about it since the early 80s when Ritz was working with Marvin Gaye and met Rick James, who was at the peak of his fame, uh, leading the Stone City Band, quote, carrying Motown. This is a period of time when he was <laughs> easily the biggest artist on Motown. I think that was about a four-year period from 79 to 83. He was also producing uh, and songwriting, you know, for Tina Marie, the Mary Jane Girls, the Temptations. So, I mean, if he wasn't the star that stirred the straw that stirred the drink at Motown, I don't know who was. Well, yeah, he he definitely. I would, 
I would. <laughs> Rick's a funny dude, man. <laughs> Rick, uh, uh, he's not wrong, and and also this dude has an entertainingly huge ego, which is you know why people, so many people know him today. But uh, but there was also the Commodores, and uh, you know then the Commodores led to uh, the success that uh, Lionel Richie had. That was all at Motown too. But yeah, Rick. Uh, spread out a little bit. His sound uh, spread out a little bit into he would influence other people, and also he had you know the the Mary Jane girls that he was producing, Tina Marie that he was producing, the Temptations he produced. So yeah, the sound of Motown at that time was probably more Rick James than the Commodores, but the Commodores had some big old hits too, and Rick yeah. neglects that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and I'm glad you brought that up. And and this was the hard funk Commodores before Lionel Richie did what well, he did, which yeah, you know this is getting into the three times a lady stuff and all that. Well, that's true. That's true. He 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 hinted at his future directions while yeah. he was still with with the Commodores. But back to Rick. I mean, I think that uh, Ritz has a great quote: "Between Parliament and Prince, Rick James carried the banner of black pop over that fertile territory known as funk." that pretty well sums up what his biggest accomplishment was oh yeah um yeah this is uh the sound that he came up with the sound that he landed on when he finally got his big shot uh is sort of in that middle it's very there's a lot of george clinton a lot of a lot of p-funk in general particularly some of bootsy's solo stuff bootsy collins uh the bass player's solo stuff um, you can definitely hear that in the mix, and you can also hear that this is really, really post-disco music. This is like right after, or basically during, but leaning out of the the disco era. His sound was really his sound, and Luther Vandross. Those were sort of the post-disco sounds right before you get into the Minneapolis sound with Prince. Yeah, absolutely. And I also think you got to mention Earth, Wind and Fire as another one of his lodestars that for sure. Yeah, that you could almost say it was a cross between P-Funk and Earth, Wind and Fire. Um, but when, and Barry White, who he mentions. Yes, yes. And he loved Barry White. And and that's um, the, that really comes through in, in the controversial Garden of Love album, which preceded um, his massive hit Street. Now I'm blanking on the uh, uh, street songs, yeah. Street songs, yeah, with um, with Superfly on it. But but I also one of the things that really fascinated, <laughs> yeah, Superfly. Uh, um, one of the things that really fascinated me about this book, because I've watched the documentary and I watched we did a whole episode uh, with Justin Banks on the Tales for the Tour Bus episode on Rick James, and one thing that that neither of those really got across as much as this book did was how long his apprenticeship was. Yeah. And how accomplished his apprenticeship was. I mean, this is a guy who was on Motown multiple times, both as an act and as a producer writer. He was on Atlantic, uh, you know, did the whole sign to Atlantic, flew out to Miami, and nothing happened. No album ever came out. He was on MGM and did an album with a group uh, called Great White Cane. Um, had solo hits uh, in Europe on A and M Records. So he put in a full decade of work and 
at a pretty high level. I mean, he's literally in a band with Neil Young. He's um, in a band with multiple members, future Steppenwolf members. He's hanging out with Jay Sebring. He's, you know, we'll get to, we'll get to the yeah. whole Helter Skelter connection, but I mean, uh, you know, he's, he's opening up for yes. And Jethro Tull in California, it, it, he's playing at a very high level and it just never came together for him until the late seventies. So a pretty peripatetic uh, journey to the top on, for Mr. James. Yeah, it really is an unbelievable journey. I knew about the, the Neil Young link, but when I cracked open the book, turns out that was just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And let's go ahead and hear our first song, and this is The Minor Birds featuring uh, Rick James, or as he was known then, Ricky James Matthews, uh, with Neil Young on guitar and Bruce Palmer on bass, who goes on to go on and form Buffalo Springfield with Neil Young. This is It's My Time by The Minor Birds. was the folk rock sound of a young Ricky James Matthews, a.k.a. Rick James, fronting the Minor Birds featuring Neil Young and Bruce Palmer. But we got a little bit before we get to uh, Motown in 1966. He's born in Buffalo and uh, born James Ambrose Johnson Jr. as uh, one of eight children of a Catholic mother in Buffalo. And she worked in the numbers rackets in Buffalo. Um <laughs> <laughs> which which kind of sets a tone you know for rick's entire life music and the underworld are closely connected and that's one of the reasons it took him so long to succeed in music because so many times when he was on his way when he had the right band put together he had the financial backing he was in the hot scene and you know there's the popo knocking at the door because he's been up to no good can we blame his mother for this or or not what, well, I think I think it goes both ways, right? Um, there is so much that he was exposed to at a at a very young age, both creatively and otherwise, and you know, uh, criminally, <laughs> things like that. That, uh, yeah, I guess you could say that his his mom uh, played a part in him getting arrested all the time. But also, um, this kid got snuck into a bar where where the uh, John Coltrane uh, quintet was playing, you know, when he was a small little kid. Like, that'll do something for you. Indeed. And that was a, 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 a he grew up in Buffalo, but he he ran off to New York City. For that particular escapade. And so he sees Coltrane at the Vanguard with Eric Dolphy, with Coy Tyner, Elvin Jones. Um, and then he goes and sees Jackie Wilson at the Apollo. And to me, that kind of set both sides of his musical coin right there. I mean, um, you know, this fascination with jazz and this 
love for pop R&B, you know, as epitomized by Jackie Wilson. And then he was a big Motown fan when he went back to Buffalo. Um, but he's also, he was in a doo-wop group called the Duprays and was a drummer, was a jazz drummer and claims he sat in with Thelonious Monk and there's no reason to doubt it. So, um, you know, one of the most well-rounded musical educations of anybody we've talked about. Oh, for sure. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> I, I, it's unfortunate that, or it is what it is that I, I keep when I think about Rick James, I keep thinking about Prince, but uh, Prince does have a similar background, but uh, without all of the luminaries. Um, you know, that, that he, he had, uh, his father ran a, was the, uh, jazz band leader. And very early on, he was playing a lot of, uh, jazz and pop, you know, on the piano as, as a young kid. They're actually a lot more similar than, than Rick would probably like to admit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and being stuck out in Minneapolis, Prince didn't have as many chances to connect. No. Uh, as as Rick did, although Buffalo is pretty much the hinterlands as well. Um, let's see, what else I want to say? I think that was pretty much covered his childhood. But uh, one thing that's kind of a red flag for his his future fate is that even as a teen, he's he was dabbling with heroin and um and and bad company. I mean, a lot of his friends were gangsters and 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 got into serious trouble although rick's trouble had more to do with vietnam than any kind of street escapades early on yeah it's really interesting there was i wish i wish i could remember the name of his mentor but it it seems like he had a mix of bad influences and fairly positive influences uh going on in his in his life but it seems like uh yeah the underworld influences plus he was dealing with a lot of racism i think the integration of schools was really hard for him and uh and there were also there was also uh you know racism going on out of schools violence that was going on uh amongst his um uh group of teens that that he was a part of along with his his mentor they experienced some uh some uh animosity from some hateful uh, white guys um and that sort of hardened him a little bit where you know he was reading James Baldwin and stuff like that and he could have who knows? Could have been civil rights leader Rick James, and he somewhat was, but um, it didn't go that way. No, no, it did not. And yeah, Buffalo, from the way Rick James tells it, and I have no reason to doubt this, that it's right up there with Boston as far as racist northeast cities. And uh, you know, he ran into trouble with Italian kids, and also uh, uh, I think he called them redneck kids, but just what we would think of as more you know, uh, Scots, Irish, English types, but it was the threat of Vietnam led him to sign up for the Navy Reserve. And then being young Rick James, he just had a real hard time making those weekend commitments. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, we can laugh about it because his life turned out 
relatively well. I mean, obviously, yeah, the, the highest of highs. Um, but nonetheless, you know, if you were a parent or a big brother, or it would be maddening to watch a kid screw up like this, you know, yeah. chance after chance uh, with the Navy. Uh, and the whole reason for signing up with the Naval Reserve was so you would stay out of Vietnam. And he did that fairly early on. I mean, I think 63, 64, 65. But he screwed up so bad he was about to be sent to Vietnam. And that's when he went AWOL and ran up to Canada, where this is where the networking really jumps up another level. I mean, he, he, mm-hmm. he did, you know, he, he, he saw some biggies in his time in Buffalo and New York and even played with Monk, but literally first day in Toronto, he's jumped by a bunch of racists and he's bailed out by two members of the Hawks, Garth Hudson and Levon Helm. Another guy named Pat McGraw goes on to become a big friend and they become famous later on as the band. So immediately is inadvertently networking at the very top. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where I I want to not believe him, but you also want to not believe that uh, uh, Charlie Murphy stuff true too, and that's all true. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So I get a yeah. Um, uh, it it makes a lot of sense. I think that. The Hawks under Ronnie Hawkins and then on their own, I think they were pretty, pretty, you know, high on the the totem pole in Toronto music. And I'm sure the music scene wasn't incredibly big, which is part of the reason why they were there in the first place. So in these like uh, big towns with, you know, small, tight knit musical communities, it's totally possible that he runs right into them. Yeah, it's it's a relatively small scene. And I, I've been reading um, John Kay of Steppenwolf's autobiography, and he was in Toronto around the same time. And it's a, it was a very, very small musical town. And it really does seem like everybody knew each other. And, and right away, uh, the Steppenwolf connection continues when he meets a guy named Nick St. Nicholas. Steppenwolf had the best uh, band names. <laughs> <laughs> Nick St. Nicholas is one of them, and there's another one, Goldie McJohn, but he he didn't uh, play with Rick. But oh, actually, he did. Yeah, he, he's going to be um, in there in some bands. But he meets Nick St. Nicholas, forms a band called the Sailor Boys, based on his naval experience, and has a corny uh, naval uniform thing. And uh, but he he describes Nick as a slippery cat who started playing with Jack London and the Sparrows. Uh, who had a, a capital record contract, but I'm already in trouble with Steph because I was supposed to cue, and and so I got to <laughs> cue our next song. And this is Great White Cane. This is Rick James' uh, second band to be signed to a major label. This is a band on MGM, and this is kind of his jazz fusion early '70s band. This is from the Country Woman Suites. Rick James band on MGM from the early 70s called Great White Cane. That was the Country Woman Suite. And we're still in Toronto, and he's got a band with Nick St. Nicholas, but pretty soon Nick jumps 
jumps for the sparrows, which is going to become Steppenwolf. But um, no loss because he replaces him with Bruce Palmer, who's going to go on uh, to fame in Buffalo Springfield. And Goldie McJohn plays keyboards with him. Goldie McJohn's going to go on uh, to fame and fortune with Steppenwolf. But at the same time, he's hanging out with Joni Mitchell, Kenny Rogers, uh, Neil Young, David Clayton Thomas, later of Blood, Sweat and Tears, Gordon Lightfoot himself. And um, one thing I really thought was interesting was he described some of the the musical influences swapping that he's doing with his bandmates. And he said, you know, um, you know, that uh, Bruce Palmer was playing him Laura Nyro records and while I played them Ornette Coleman. They introduced me to Elmore James and Robert Johnson while I introduced them to Joe Tex and Pharaoh Sanders. And that I thought was interesting that it was these white folkies that are introducing Rick James to the hardcore blues guys like Elmore James and Robert Johnson. And the Robert Johnson is a no-brainer because that that album on Columbia that made Robert Johnson famous was primarily marketed to the folk community. But I'm still oh, yeah. a little surprised he didn't know Elmore James. Yeah, well, it doesn't surprise me. Yeah, but, um, uh, Chicago blues was really local. <laughs> um, not to say that these these folks didn't have hits, but their veneration was very Chicago. Um, so it, it, it does make some sense to me. Uh, there's, there's a good bet that they got to Elmore James through the Rolling Stones probably. Uh, and perhaps did one Robert Johnson. I don't know. Um, I think Robert Johnson, the, 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 you know, Bob Dylan got that direct. I guess John Hammond handed him that at Columbia Records, but that that was just big with the Folkies. Yeah. Uh, Columbia Records LP. And, and yeah, Ed Ward said the same thing uh, to me many times, was that those blues guys were seen as a little bit corny uh, by a lot of the younger black artists, and they didn't play the Chitlin circuit. They played clubs and tended to stay local. So, yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. But pretty soon... Rick um, puts together the band that that he thinks is going to be his ticket to fame and fortune. And, and and he hooks up. And this is another thing that I thought was fascinating about this is Rick is very open about how he cultivated guys with money. That basically for Rick putting together a, a project, you needed an image, a name, a band. You had Rick James to start with. So, you know, you're starting pretty strong but the money guy is also a key factor that he really focused on um and, and his first uh backer was this guy colin kerr who was an a, a, quote english would be brian epstein and um the guy you know was apparently pretty slick pr uh, artist who got them in the local toronto papers by sending them to eaton's department store you know in their beetles wear finery and long hair and uh, arranged for some teenage girls to chase him through the store and you know, <laughs> got some newspaper coverage. And um, unfortunately, though, Kerr uh, forced him to record two songs by his brother, the Minor Bird Hop and the Minor Bird Song. And, uh, and, and that pretty much <laughs> forced a change in direction. They did some TV teen shows in Hamilton, Ontario, but then they fired uh, Kerr. And then Rick sees, uh, makes a trip to New York City and sees Love and Spoonful um, and is blown away, which I also thought that was fascinating. And I think I'd read that in another interview and, and sort of thought that was a joke because that's something he dropped, you know, at, at the peak of his funk years in the late 70s. But, you know, Love and Spoonful definitely was the East Coast, the East Coast folk rock band at the time. So 
um, you know, I, I, I don't doubt it at all that that was a, a, a key uh, influence on him. And, and then Joni Mitchell recommends her friend Neil Young on guitar, and boom, the Minor Birds go from being kind of a Beatles, Stones imitation to a full-on, state-of-the-art folk rock band. And then they find another pair of, of manager funders, Morty Shellman and John Crank, Craig Eaton, uh, and that's later going to come back and bite him in the butt. But they sign with Motown, and um, Barry Gordon is very impressed. That hooks him right up with Mickey Stevenson, the legendary songwriter-producer who um, wrote Dancing in the Streets and produced it on Martha and the Vandellas. So, you know, he has the whole Motown experience. He meets Marvin Gaye, Stevie Wonder, David Ruffin, Tammy Terrell. And then he fires his manager, and that bites him in the ass. Yeah, it seemed like uh, there was good reason to to fire that guy because they, they weren't seeing the money. Um, but uh, it it's unfortunate. Those uh, sides that Motown, I don't, yeah, I think Motown maybe did put them out. I can't remember. Somehow no, they didn't release them until much later. Um, okay. They were about to put out um, that first thing we played, It's My Time. And that's when the manager ratted him out uh, that that he was AWOL from the Navy and Barry Gordy wanted nothing to do with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really it kind of sucks because, yeah, Motown was definitely looking to get into the rock and roll angle. And they eventually did with Rare Earth. I always thought was kind of a corny band, but if you listen to the Minor Birds, the Minor Birds had something. They really did. Like that that song, "It's My Time," uh, which uh, Rick wrote, thinking it was, and it wasn't. Um, that's actually a a really really good song. I also think that it's it's interesting that um, Rick acknowledges his Rolling Stones influence. Uh, and he talks about Mick Jagger, but he says, like, I could definitely sing better than Mick Jagger. <laughs> I got to say, <laughs> Neil Young has said that that Rick James wanted to be Mick Jagger. And if you listen to those Minor Bird sides, that's exactly what it sounds like. He sounds like he's been listening to a lot of early Stone sides. Yeah, there's there's no doubt about that. And And it's also, you know, if you if you know the history of Neil Young later on, Having Neil Young in your band brought a lot of talent, but it also brought a lot of personality issues. And and Neil Young, you know, would go on to bedevil Steve Stills. So, um, in multiple bands. So Rick might be lucky in the end that <laughs> 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 that didn't work out. But it's one of those great what ifs. I mean, because the Motown Machine could definitely have marketed them, and it's just a kind of a question of of you know could they have broken through to white radio. Um, I, I think they could have. I mean, there's there's a chance if anybody could have done it, it would have been Motown in, in the 60s. And that would have, yeah, that would have been a, a dramatic, uh, a dramatic shift. But time for Agreed. our sponsor break. When we come back, we'll talk about what Rick does after his first serious jail time. And so the minor birds implode when their manager rats Rick out for being AWOL from the Navy. And then he he uh, once again does the same pattern of getting pretty cush deals, screwing them up. And at one point he's looking at like a five-year prison term. And and his, his mom kind of pulls a, a, a whole card out because they've got a cousin, Louis Stokes, who's a U.S. congressman. And, and he helps Ricky out and gets him a five-month stint. And he ultimately does... 
And while he's in jail, he has to find out about the success of of his buddies, Neil Young and Bruce Palmer in Buffalo Springfield and Nick St. Nicholas and Goldie McJohn in Steppenwolf. But at, at the same time in prison, he's uh, gets really into the Beatles and Miles Davis and discovers Guitar Watson and Larry Williams, which is a, an album Ed Ward hipped me to. So that, I thought that was a pretty interesting little mix of influences there. And then... For- Go ahead. Yeah, sure. For sure. Now he he'd uh, grown up listening to Miles Davis. Yeah, but it's this new era of Miles Davis in a right. way, and and, yeah. and pointing towards the fusion that that he's going to that really was was getting Rick's uh, attention. And he's also talking about the Beatles' White Album, but I don't know if the Beatles' White Album was out yet because it doesn't come out until late '68, like the very end of '68. So he might have been thinking about Sergeant Pepper or conflating a time when he was into the, I mean, he clearly knows the white album from talking about it. Um, For sure. But um, he might've had his timelines mixed up a little bit there, but then he heads down to Miami and another one of his buddies from Buffalo, a guy calls big red uh, is doing real well uh, in, in Miami. And um, Rick's immediately uh, hooks up with the famous criterion studios there. And he claims that he played bass uh, for Sam Moore of Sam and Dave and I know that Sam and Dave were discovered in Miami. I guess he was Sam Moore was doing some solo recording there. That's after uh, the Atlantic Stacks breakup, and, and Sam and Dave were kind of lost at sea. He also claims he played with Dwayne Allman, Steve Cropper, and Cornell Dupre. Uh, Dupree, three of the best, most legendary session guitarists of that era. Um, and, you know, I have no doubt Rick could hang with those guys. I mean, um, you know, but once again, uh, you know, uh, a, a successful, career, a promising career path is is pulled out from under him when his buddy Rick Big Red gets busted, and and Rick has to get out of town. <laughs> <laughs> Wonder why? <laughs> uh, yep, yep, indeed. And and so so then he heads out uh, to L.A. and he's immediately uh, staying at Steve Still's house. Steve Steve uh, was in Buffalo Springfield with Neil Young. And Bruce Palmer immediately, you know, I think his first day there, he meets Richie Fure, who was also in Buffalo Springfield, and David Crosby, who was in the Birds at the time, and is going to form Crosby, Stills, and Nash, later Crosby, Stills, and Nash, with, and Young with Stephen Stills. He sees love at the whiskey, and uh, no time at all, him and Johnny Eccles are pals, and has a weird run-in with Jim Morrison, um, who, you know, what's the story, that Rick was passed out, and he wakes up, and there's some weird dude in the lotus position on the floor in the room he's in. <laughs> Um, you know, bleeding and uh, and and uh, it was interesting. He he claims that Jim Morrison was a big Motown groupie who found out about Rick's connections to Motown and bombarded me with questions about Smokey and Marvin. I did not see that coming. Well, uh, you know, it's it's interesting. I think that uh, maybe at the time and definitely a little later, Motown, especially in this. Uh, era up until the late 60s early 70s they're really seen as this corny label to uh uh a lot of people who thought they were hip but if you were a musician and you were listening to the way that you know Smokey and Holland Dozier Holland were, were writing and the way it was all being produced you were like I gotta I gotta get me some of that you know, so it doesn't surprise me that that Jim Morrison was uh, was into all of that. 
Yeah, that's true. And it's, it, it is interesting because from talking to like Ed Ward and Peter Goralnik and some of these critics from that era that I've gotten to meet through this show, they really did see a big difference between Stax and Motown. Like they didn't consider Motown soul. Those guys were yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> if you call Motown soul, which just baffles me. But anyway, um, but in no time at all, you know, Rick, Rick kind of has an outside looking in experience in LA because he's hanging out with these guys and he's jamming with them, but he never quite settles into, into a band in this early period. But he meets a guy named Jay Sebring, who's um, at the time was like the king of Hollywood hairstylists, kind of the Dallas Sassoon of his day. Most famous now, unfortunately, as one of the victims of the Manson family uh, in Sharon Tate's house. But um, Rick and, and Sebring were close, and they shared a lover, a woman named Perfect. Um, and a, according to Rick, he, he had talked to James into backing him financially, and all he needed to go do was go to Toronto, and um, he knew exactly the musicians he wanted. He he flew up there with Perfect and sees this band who are called O-Pix, O-O-P-P-I-C-K-S. Um, but no time at all, um, the police in Toronto were basically waiting for him because of some shenanigans he had pulled the previous <laughs> visit to town. <laughs> he was wearing the clothes he stole. <laughs> yes <laughs> gifted musician not a gifted criminal i have to say uh, about rick james so he he draws a nine months and it's this time and that um you know perfect never called him back his mom though was there for him and um and uh you know he he rides that out and then and then heads back um to detroit and this time he works as a staff writer from Motown, Norman Whitfield, who's um, revolutionizing things with Marvin Gaye and the Temptations right around this time. Uh, I wouldn't say, I don't know, he, I was going to say Whitfield took him under his wing, but um, I don't know if that's quite right, but but definitely. Oh, that's what Rick says. It, 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 that checks out, yeah. Okay, okay. Because uh, um, sometimes he, he kind of bristles about Whitfield, so that I couldn't tell if they were you know, mentor, mentee, or rival. Well, he's not the only one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's true. Um, but he talks about, you know, getting to uh, cut sessions, uh, one session in particular where he worked with the Funk Brothers, and this particular iteration featured Earl Van Dyke on keys, James Jamerson, the great James Jamerson on bass, Pistol Allen, the Shuffle King on drums, uh, and Dennis Coffey, and he produces Out in the Country um, with Bobby Taylor, and that is our next song. So one of these actually worked out perfectly. So this is Bobby Taylor, Out in the Country, written and produced by Ricky Matthews. You know, and that's Rick James. And that was Bobby Taylor doing Out in the Country, uh, written and produced by young Rick James, going by Ricky Matthews at the time. And I was really impressed with that. Um, I, I went through and checked out a number of the songs he wrote and produced at Motown. And um, it's just interesting that he, he he didn't ever get a hit in this in this phase. But I guess the competition uh, was just too heavy. And it was also a period of time when Barry Gordy had already moved out to L.A. And that was one of the pieces of advice Whitfield gave him was, you know, this town is dead. The actions in Los Angeles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think um, he might have gotten there a little too late, but I would say maybe something that that gets 
a little overlooked by maybe even Rick himself is that Norman Whitfield was going into clubs and listening to the stuff that George Clinton was doing. George Clinton was, I think, briefly writing for Motown, but he was starting to form that Parliament Funkadelic thing uh, at that time in the late 60s. And Norman Whitfield went straight into the Motown studios and, you know, copped a lot of stuff from that. So Rick might have, you know, secondhand been the second or third person to really be influenced by uh, George Clinton in that way. And that shows up later when um, when uh, Rick has his breakthrough success. Absolutely. And it's interesting because Rick was so tight with so many of the white rock bands that were influencing Clinton. Um but they were still doing more folk rock. Like it, he he doesn't mention Hendrix until much later on. It's interesting. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, he might have been getting it from Clinton. And another influence uh, in this period that he mentions is Calvin Hardaway, who's Stevie Wonder's brother. And Calvin told Rick James to study Burt Bacharach and Hal David and Jose Feliciano. So that was another swerve I was not expecting the 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 Motown sage sitting right down and telling them which easy listening guys <laughs> to check out. Now that makes sense. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I mean that was yeah. definitely definitely part of the mix. Um, yeah. Oh man, black people love Bacharach, by the way. <laughs> well. <laughs> hey, white people love him too. Yeah, um, yeah. But, but yeah. we love him. <laughs> but yeah, it's true. And you don't have that thing that I think that the white boy rockers have where we want to we want to distance ourselves from that stuff because it's not macho enough. I think, you know, um, I, I don't see that that strain in the black community the way I do um, with those white folks. But he, in spots. Yeah, yeah that, that's true. It's true. Uh, Run DMC just immediately flashing my head with their arms crossed and, and angry. But um, <laughs> but he takes Whitfield's advice and goes back to L.A. He hooks up with this guy, Greg Reeves. Um, and and they they start a group called Salt and Pepper. He reconnects with Jay Sebring, who's totally forgives him for for you know disappearing on him the last time. But almost immediately, Greg Reeves is poached by Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. And I think anybody who's an aspiring musician could relate to Rick's pain when he goes brings his buddy out to hang out with his even more famous buddy, his famous buddies, and they immediately poach. <laughs> Yeah, I here's the thing. (laughs) You you've got a band that already has Stephen Stills, Neil Young and David Crosby. Like which one of those people wants to bring another uh, another ego into the room? Yeah. Although Rick, you know, I'm sure even at, at this point in time was was incredibly talented uh man that uh, from everything that i know that that band was already you know yeah it was over it was too top heavy i think if rick had been around a little earlier when stills was looking for when they Stills was looking for somebody to be the second instrumental force so they could play live and that's when he reached back and gets neil young but he wanted stevie winwood um and Rick, I think, could have filled that slot, and it would have oh, been yeah, interesting sure. uh, to see how that would have played out. But 
And the other big tragedy is that Sebring is then, uh, you know, murdered by uh, Tex Watson and Susan Atkins and the rest of the Manson family. So he loses his backer, loses a friend. And, and you know, that had to be traumatic because he was invited to the party that night. And, you know, that by all accounts, that was an enormous sea change in, in the L.A. scene at that a, a total loss of innocence. America's always losing our innocence, but this was one of those moments. But nonetheless, he he it takes him some time, but he he pushes through. He does form his band Salt and Pepper. Um, he ends up opening for Yes and Jethro Tull at the Whiskey. He's signed to Atlantic. He's managed by Phil Walden, who had been Otis Redding's manager, and then goes on to manage the Almond Brothers. And you know, it looks like. Everything should have worked for that. They're signed to Atlantic. They go to Criteria, uh, Criterion in Miami to record with Tom Dowd. And, you know, we talked about Jerry Wexler in a previous episode. And this is one of this. This is the period where Jerry Wexler spent a lot of time out on his boat. And, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and you know, Rick James Band Salt and Pepper is just uh, one another bit of business he didn't take care of. And so that one fell apart. And I think it's something of this era where there's such a gulf between starting bands and bands that are on the ladder to success. And the discos had arisen, not disco music, but discos, places where people played records instead of listening to live bands. And the economics of that meant that you couldn't make a living as a live band, essentially, unless you broke through and had hit singles and were touring and that whole bit. But the difference between forming bands and getting them going in the 60s and the 70s is enormous because that bottom tier of the economics has been taken out. So, you know, in another era, Salt and Pepper maybe could have been a live touring band that could have made a living and found another record label. But in the early 70s, that was just a death blow if, if your record label screwed you around like that and didn't didn't cut a record on you and dropped you. Um, you know, he had to start over from scratch, but he does. One is a group called White Cane. He's inspired by Miles Davis and Marvin Gaye's uh, Let's Get It On and, and What's Going On and Let's Get It On. And signs to MGM, uh, the infamous Mike Curb, um, who I could go on and on for hours <laughs> what Mike Curb did uh, to Dick Dale and Hank Williams III and, and many other artists. But somehow Rick uh, got this band, got it past uh, Mike Curb. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, a band called um, Great White Cane, like, to me, that's obviously a cocaine reference. And somehow oh, yeah. convinces <laughs> Mike Irvin says sugar cane. <laughs> I mean, you're talking about the guy that, that got a song called Mary Jane to be a hit on the radio. That's <laughs> true. That's true. <laughs> um, but unfortunately, Kerb hooked him up with a guy named Jimmy Yenner, who had produced The Raspberries with Eric Carmen. It's already, I mean, like, I find very little commonality between the Raspberries and, and Rick James. And, um, you know, they tour with B.B. King, go well live, but the record flops. He blames the production and they got dropped. So, you know, once again, just imagine the work and effort it took to put together not just a band, but a big band. I mean, this is his attempt to do, you know, to, to reckon with jazz fusion and the kind of production that Marvin Gaye was doing on. Uh, what's going on so you know um yeah i think this is where you know we make fun of of rick's ego 
but that high uh, self-esteem is what gets you through putting all this work in for it all to fall apart over and over again. Um, I, I know a bunch of different uh, musicians that just are, are great, but they don't quite get the break or they just miss it or something like that. And they got to do something else. But Rick stays with it. And that's that's really admirable. Yeah, it's true. Of course, he had his his whole card, which was drug dealing. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. so, <laughs> he's immediately, you know, um, uh, traveling to India uh, uh, on some business trips. Um, but he also does a little music promotion. He promotes the pool and the gang in the Ohio Players gig at one point. Um, and you know, admittedly, uh, spend some time being shady, but he gets it back together and does a, a solo single for A&M, My Mama and Funkin' Around. And let's go ahead and hear that. This is Rick James, My Mama. was a young Rick James doing a solo track called My Mama and flopped in America, but was a hit in Europe. And that's probably the lifeline that kept him going in music, because I really think um, he might not have, not have kept going if, if he hadn't had that opportunity to go play in Europe and and spend some time in Sweden and a little yeah. honey trap he found. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> He's always finding something. <laughs> that he is that he is yeah we've gone light on his sexual misadventures but there are plenty of them um and and, and he shares them in, in the autobiography doesn't um, seem like he missed one no <laughs> <laughs> he, he got more than his share i would say um but you know uh ends up um with a with a, a i guess he goes back to canada and and joins a band that's already established called mainline it's more of a blues band um and 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 but he's he's financing it by dealing coke and that's how he meets george clinton and uh according to rick james clinton made him a whole bunch of promises and then never did anything for him so i don't know what do you make of that whole encounter with george clinton uh well you know george uh george his lifestyle makes it so perhaps he's not Mr. Reliable, <laughs> but um, uh, I think Rick seems to feel that maybe George Clinton was trying to block him and not give him an opportunity because maybe he saw Rick as an oncoming threat. And that's possible, but George Clinton is more like a person who is like going to bring you into his big community. It, it would be, I, I, I'm kind of shocked that George didn't just call him up and say, Hey, you want to, you want to be a part of the parliament funkadelic thing, just fit in somewhere. He did that with so many different uh, amazing musicians that he just happened to find along the way that, yeah, it's kind of it's 
interesting that uh, that George didn't just bring him into the fold. He could have just forgotten. I mean, as Rick James says, you know, cocaine's a hell of a drug. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Yeah, that's one of those mysteries. I guess we could uh, find George somewhere and ask him. I'd, I'd be curious to hear Clinton's take on it uh, and hopes when we ask him uh, while he's still with us. Um, yeah, uh, I, I, I could see it either way because George clearly was not intimidated by talent. I mean, he brought so many talented people in, but maybe the charisma of Rick James was so obvious it, it, it spooked him. Who knows? But one way or another, it didn't that work could out. Be. It didn't work out. And he has enough, he continues to put out indie singles, um, both as Rick James and Hot Lips. He forms a group called Gorilla. And, and nothing really clicks until he goes back to Buffalo and puts together the Stone City Band. And then everything clicked. Yeah, that that song, You and I, came out, and that seemed to be a real template. That is, when you think of the Rick James sound, that's it. That, that You and I single that uh, later is on his debut album, or at least debut under the name Rick James album, Come and Get It, uh, or Come With It. I can't remember. But anyway... Yeah, come come and get it. Um, that song is it, and I think Mary Jane is on there too. Yeah, it's on that first album. Yeah, which is uh, which is a great song too. Not necessarily representative of like the Rick James sound that became influential in this period, in this sort of like post disco period. Apparently, the clubs were going crazy for it. Yeah, it, it blew up immediately, went double platinum, and um, you know then he immediately puts out another album, Busting Out of L7, which is a concept album, uh, L7, uh, which is old 60s slang for losers. There's the 90s grunge band L7, but um, it, it was definitely a common term. And then, you know, the Fire It Up album, two albums in 1979. Uh-oh, Preston's <laughs> um, Neighbors are getting rowdy. Um, but he, he puts out Bustin' at L7, and, and there's a clear pattern. Like it, The first one goes to number 13 on the R&B charts, then the next one's number 16. The third one, Fired Up, is number 34. And then Garden of Love is pretty much a stiff in 1980. Uh, it only hits 83 uh, on the U.S. pop charts. Um, yeah. Go ahead. I really, I really like Garden of Love. I, I gave it a spin, and I'm like, oh, this is this is cool. He's sort of stepping out a little bit. Rick, I think he did find a formula with that for with uh, you and I, and he really worked it over the course of those those albums. Garden of Love sort of mixes it up a little bit, but still has that formula going. It's a really cool album. It's a really cool transitional album, I'd say. Yeah, I, I thought so too. I thought it was him kind of grappling with Gamble and Huff and uh, some of the smoother sounds of disco in that era. And and it would be interesting to see where he would have gone if that had hit. But of course, it it didn't. And uh, that's when he comes up with with the funk punk angle and and street songs, which is you know the album. Uh, and the single Super Freak that he is most known for, and, and it's the definitive sound. And I see it as a second era, uh, a, a clear evolution from Come and Get It. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Street Songs is just, 
if there's one, and maybe there shouldn't be just one Rick James album that people check out, but if there is one, that's it. Uh, Street Songs is just back to front. So, so good. Really fun. Um, you know, the the lyrics are are limited to what he's interested in. <laughs> yep. Sex, cocaine, <laughs> and funk. Uh, but... Uh, and, but but also he definitely also gets into some uh political commentary he talks about uh police officers uh uh you know uh killing people unwarranted in, in mr policeman and and uh, he talks about ghetto life where he literally calls out the the young girl that introduced him to sex like i think her uh he says in the book it's nancy and then he says in the song ghetto life he says he talks literally about nancy he's not kidding (laughs) when when he sings that song and then there's uh uh maybe as much as super freak in uh the mainstream uh fire and desire the the duet that he does with Tina Marie has never left uh, black radio. It is like the Quiet Storm song, more than Quiet Storm, the Smokey Robinson song, probably. Um, that is like, that is 80s R&B ballad, period. Um, he really, really worked that album. And if he never quite hit those heights again. Man, uh, he, he really put a, a, a number on it with that one. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and that's something I hadn't really thought about. But, you know, you, when you think about street songs, you obviously think of Prince, who's about to cut Dirty Mind. Obviously, Prince was paying close attention. But Luther Vandross, I think, was paying just as much attention to Fire and Desire. And like you said, yeah, setting the tone for the 80s. And, you know, that's one of the things about Rick James, you know, when you first discover him like you know i mean it's one thing to discover him like i did casually as a fan or whatever you know i had street songs back in the day but going back at you know as a serious music scholar or whatever and look at his discography like you know especially compared to say george clinton who has just got this deep vein of accomplishment with p-funk or prince who has multiple eras you know rick basically has these two phases kind of three if you count garden of love as mm-hmm. another one and then and then he falls off pretty fast. And I think that the the explanation is pretty straightforward. He was pretty old when he got called up to the major leagues. I mean, he had so many lost years and so many lost projects. You know, there should have been a Minor Birds album. There should have been a Salt and Pepper album. There should have been multiple Great White Cane albums. I mean, you know, this is a guy who could have, would have, should have been putting out serious work from 1965 on and he doesn't really get to get started until 1978 so i think that explains the rather truncated uh peak era that he enjoyed um and i think i think that'd be true of anybody you know if you're an athlete who was late getting to the major leagues i'm thinking of robert redford as the natural you know roy hobbs the Alameda story where you know he's 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 hurt shot uh, early on, and he and he comes back as as an older rookie. I think Rick James was in some of that same position where he had so many um, 
failures to 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 connect with a mass audience that by the time he finally did, you know, he was at his peak, obviously, in his prime, but um, wasn't in a position to go on and have multiple phases and recreate himself over and over, you know, like um, David Bowie or the Beatles or or Prince got to do. He he really had that one iteration, affected his star persona, and never could get past that. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I think uh, partially, I, I think that's all all correct. He was not a young man when he really got into the spotlight. And you do you do wonder, like, if this guy was given the keys earlier, what could he have done? What he did was pretty substantial. And like, there's a whole strain of 80s R&B that owes its success to Rick James. Rick seems to think that one of those people is Prince. I don't, I, I, I can hear it, but barely. They're more like contemporaries than, than one influencing another because they both put out their debut album at the same time. And then, you know, all the way into the mid 80s, they were both putting out albums every year. And I think they were where Rick really rode a, uh, a formula because he finally found something that was clicking. Um, Prince was a younger man. He was still trying to, to find himself. So even though they're starting in the mainstream uh, at the same time, you know, he puts out Come and Get It. Uh, Prince puts out For You. But, you know, by the time uh, 1982 comes along, Street Songs gets put out. And that's the best thing, I, I would say, that Rick James ever comes uh, out with, uh, yeah. you know, as a whole. And in 82, Prince puts out 1999, which, you know, so... He's spreading his wings, wings, and it's becoming a whole other thing. <laughs> and you might have seen that from Rick James if he had been, you know, given the keys in say 1968 instead of 1978. Yeah. Um, but I think that his sound, Rick's sound, definitely was was out there, and it's a sound that I. I remember so much, even when it's not Rick James, there's like, I think about like the whispers and Shalimar, DeBarge, there's like a whole, there's a whole right strain of R&B that is like this, like very bass driven, bass riff heavy, um, forward facing it's not laid back <laughs> very forward facing and uh kind of aggressive post disco funk that uh that i think it still works today uh and i i think because it was 1978 when he came out with that album and he was like uh, a little more on the aggressive end and he was kind of like the bad boy of r&b um he called himself punk funk you know this like the year before in 77 was like the big the big punk rock explosion in attitude maybe you you can hear some punk 
stuff going on, but I'm thinking maybe he just said that to I think make more street so- songs that was when he really started ad- adopting the punk funk thing. And and I think you can hear it more in that album than in other stuff. Yeah. I, I, I think he was, I think he was talking about that pretty early. I, I, but, but, uh, in street songs has some of that. I definitely think you could play, you could play super freak and then play some talking heads and then play some B 52s. And it would kind of make sense. You can. And we did, I can tell you, ah. <laughs> we, we were, we were, uh, the the jukebox at the bowling alley um, in Borger, Texas, was dropping Super Freak, oh. Rock Lobster, back to back, and Billy Squire. Um, you know, it, it it definitely was of its time and was at the forefront of its time in a way that Prince was not until 1990, to me at least. And I, I you know, I was pretty backward on R and B. I got to say at the time, but I'm, I can remember hearing a tiny bit of Prince in that era, but Rick James was all over the place. I mean, it was Rick James and Joan Jett back-to-back on down on that jukebox. Um, and yeah. Super Freak could hang with with I Love Rock and Roll any day of the week. Um, yeah. Any final thoughts before we wrap? Uh, yeah, I'd say um, I... I I think a lot about, un, you know, fortunately, unfortunately, I, I think about a lot about Prince when I think about Rick James, and I, I think it's important to to separate them for for a number of of reasons. You know, I talked about how uh, they released their debut albums the very same year, um, but. Prince, you know, Rick also thinks that Prince stole the idea for the Mary Jane Girls and then did Vanity Six and what was the other Apollonia Six. Yeah, I think that's uh, fair. <laughs> I don't I don't think yeah. it is. No, 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 because uh George Clinton had already done that with that's uh Parlette and the Brides of Funkenstein. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I I I I think th- that there is an edge to rick uh which is maybe justified because he didn't get on mtv and prince did um and there he you know had prince open up for him on tour and he says you know the way rick tells it uh you know prince just couldn't connect yeah prince just couldn't connect with anybody that's not what I've heard. I've heard from people who were at those uh, shows on the tour that they all they came really excited for Rick James and they left being like, "Who is this dude, Prince?" And um, I I think there is some edge that Rick really feels like he should have been where Prince was thought about the way that that Prince was and. If he had had that break back in 68, that's probably the way we would have thought about him. We might have thought about Rick James and Sly Stone in like the they might have been in the same sort of conversation. But that's not what happened. And 
uh, Rick, you know, got there a decade later. And then uh, he was also kind of sliding into his own addiction as as Prince is just rising and rising and rising and ha- has not in, in, you know, people's estimation really stopped at all. People are just, um, you know, starting to really understand what uh, what his artistry was all about. But that guy lived in the studio, whereas Rick lived in the street. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and it's entirely possible if Rick had gotten his break in 1968, he would have been, you know, the funeral would have been the same year as Jimi Hendrix. So, you know. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, so all we have is the world we lived in, and it's one in which Rick James enjoyed a fair share of triumph, I had to say. Um, maybe he didn't reach those very highest levels, the Sly Stone, the Beatles, the Prince levels, but he was up there and he got his licks in. And so for Brooks Long, this has been Nate Wilcox, and we've been discussing Glow, the autobiography of Rick James. Follow the Letter Roll podcast on Twitter at Letter Rollcast and check out our website at letterrollpodcast.com. Thursday, Nate holds a letter roll seance and summons up the late Jack Palmer to discuss his book, Vernon Dalhart, first star of country music. Letter Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.